This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Welcome to the Financial Standard Podcast. I'm your host and Managing Editor of FS Sustainability, Rachel Allenbackis. Net zero may be the phrase of the year in the ESG sector, but what does a net zero target really mean? And how do you know if a company has a clear plan to decarbonize its operations? Maple Brown Abbott co-founder and managing director of Maple Brown Abbott Global Listed Infrastructure, Andrew Maple Brown, and Global Listed Infrastructure ESG analyst, Georgia Hall, explain net zero commitments, engagement, and the role that infrastructure will play in reaching the goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Hi, Georgia. Thank you so much for for joining us for this conversation. Um, If you don't mind, I'd like to just jump straight into the interview. Why is it so challenging to assess and compare companies' net zero targets? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, A net zero target can mean lots of different things. Um, And for us, it's important to gauge the materiality of emissions targets because they can range from being inconsequential to being highly ambitious. Um, what we really want to know is, is, is a statement, uh, a net zero claim of genuine, in, uh, of genuine intent? Is it viable? Is it detailed? Is it ambitious enough? Um, and aside from contributing to inferior environmental outcomes, um, if, it, if it isn't ambitious enough or there's a disconnect between statement and intent, um, it can actually create a risk in itself for portfolio management. Um, and with net zero targets, um, whilst at face value, it, say, it sounds like a great thing for a company to be announcing uh, a net zero target, which it is, but there are a number of factors that need to be taken into account. Um, primarily things like alignment. So is the ambitiousness of the target in line with the long-term temperature goal of the Paris Agreement? Um, What's the coverage? So uh, does the target cover all business operations, subsidiaries and geographies? Um, And what's the validity of the baseline year that's used? Um, What are the scopes of emissions that are being used? So are we referring to uh, scopes one, two and three emissions or a portion of that? And also what other greenhouse gas emissions are being referred to in the target? So is it just carbon emissions or does it include things like methane emissions? Um, The extent of things like real emissions reduction versus offsets. Uh, Does a company have a plan to just offset its emissions? And if that's the case, then, well, that's not really good enough as a net zero target. Um, Things like accreditation and standards. So has the target received accreditation from a body like the Science Based Targets Initiative? Um, And also other things like progress and performance. If we see that a company doesn't have a demonstrable track record of reducing its emissions over time, then the question really is, well, what's going to change now? Um, what's, What's going to change going forward? Um, And also really, really important to this, which is the the actual backbone, which is the implementation. So is the target backed by a detailed plan with a meaningful interim target in place? And to what extent are executive management accountable and incentivized to achieve the stated objective? And those sort of details, they come in various iterations of companies. Some, as I mentioned, are great um, in terms of addressing sort of really ambitious um, targets that tick all of those boxes. And then some just really fall short in a number of ways. And that's where we have to really um, pick apart the detail um, to identify the meaningfulness of a a net zero target. I'm glad you brought up the issue of methane uh, because methane is something that really came to the fore um, with the commitment by a number of of countries um, at COP26. Um, To that end, uh, Georgia, will any of the commitments coming out of COP26 help with the challenges that you've identified around things like ambition, things like scope, things like does it include methane? 
Definitely. So um, as, as other people would have read in relation to COP26, it was a mixed bag on a number of fronts. Um, we, we saw measures being watered down at the last minute on topics such as thermal coal and fossil fuel subsidies. But that's the problem with international treaty negotiations. It's a process of reaching the lowest common denominator amongst hundreds of parties. But in saying this, there were outcomes that nicely support the impetus to establish higher quality net zero targets in the private sector. So first of all, perhaps most obviously, um, ambition. Um, we saw an increased ambition in the lead up to COP26 on countries' emissions targets through their nationally determined contributions. Um, and this has brought us closer than ever, although we are quite far off from achieving a net zero emissions trajectory by mid-century. And I think the simple existence of these increased ambition, uh, level of ambition trickles down to the private sector um, and, it, and it heightens the benchmark that companies are measuring themselves against. I think what we can really say is that momentum has now fully shifted and net zero commitments are the norm. Um, so that in itself, I think, creates impetus for uh, net zero target setting in the private sector. Another area is reporting rigor. So um, the increased focus that we saw at COP26 on climate relating reporting. So countries such as the UK announced mandatory TCFD reporting schemes for companies in the financial services sector. So TCFD as in Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Um, but I think also in addition to that, um, there are some announcements such as the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, announced a new International Sustainability Standards Board. Um, so there's this real attempt to try and create more rigor around uh, reporting and also net zero target setting. But to your, your point there, Rachel, on um, methane, it's a really important one because um, in the lead up to COP26, IPCC, their six assessment report really brought the topic of methane to the fore in front of um, you know, the policymakers in advance of COP26. And we saw the Global Methane Pledge, which aims to limit methane emissions by 30% compared to 2020 levels. Um, and this was formalized um, in this forum with around 100 signatories signing up to the initiative. Um, so when I talked earlier about the variables for a net zero target, this really comes as, takes us back to this question of the importance of including other greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gas emissions and is responsible, according to the IEA, for about a third of current warming from human activities. So what, is this, what does the methane focus mean for net zero targets? I suppose, well, firstly, it helps put the onus on companies to broaden their emissions targets beyond carbon emissions. And secondly, it also brings much needed attention to the issue of fugitive methane emissions. So methane emissions that are leaking from things like gas infrastructure, particularly in the case of the energy sector. Um, and there's a long been this argument that, um, you know, the environmental benefits of coal to gas switching. Um, but in order for those benefits in terms of lower emissions to be um, realized, fugitive emission, methane emissions need to be really managed to an absolute minimum and lots of work is needed in this space. Um, there were other sectoral initiatives in, in relation to aviation and shipping that will also be helpful um, with finding net zero solutions for those hard to decarbonize sectors. Um, but it's also worth noting that COP26, because it is international law, it will never directly regulate and govern the private sector, because essentially this is a forum for establishing high level guiding principles by which they will then um, implement um, in their own jurisdictions. So. Um, We'll wait and see what this all comes to. I think that 
that's such an important point for people to keep in mind. Um, what you just said about COP being a forum for establishing high-level guiding principles. Um, I, I often I reflect off the end of uh, off the end of COPs that what we're actually trying to do um, is something that's never been attempted before in world history, i.e., to completely transform a global economy um, through peaceful means rather than mm. you know global conflict. Um, so. It's, you have to, I, I think it's important to remember that these are high level commitments that happen um, and that there's gotta be national and subnational um, backfill, so to speak, to meet those yeah. goals. Um, you mentioned before, I'm really glad you brought up the point about uh, infrastructure. Uh, why does Maple Brown Abbott see infrastructure as key to accomplishing net zero targets? Um, well, as long-dated assets that provide essential services to society, global-listed infrastructure assets underpin our very modern-day existence. So, for example, with the provision of water and electricity, um, the roads on which we drive, the airports that we transit through when we travel, and also our ability to communicate with one another, so things like communications towers. Um, achieving the long-term temperature goal of the Paris Agreement, in other words, if we are to achieve net zero emissions by mid-century, we need to see the timely and rapid decarbonisation of the world's infrastructure, and most especially the energy, um, energy sector and its end uses, according to the World Resources Institute, contributes to around three quarters of the, the, the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and that's why it's such a main focus for us in, in terms of our emissions analysis and climate related engagement is, is really focused um, heavily on, on companies in the electricity, um, energy and, and power sector. Um, and we've seen some really great progress um, with some water utilities, for example, are not far off reaching their net zero emissions targets. And some electric utilities are tracking really nicely towards their interim target to reduce emissions by up to sort of 80% by 2030. But we need to continue making them accountable to their statements because um, setting a target is not the end of the story, it's the beginning of a story. Um, and that's where we believe active engagement as opposed to divestment is actually really critical to decarbonisation because after all, the world can live without tobacco companies, but we can't live without electric and water utilities. Um, and that's the role that we see we play when we invest in globalist infrastructure companies. I think I might take the opportunity now to bring in Andrew Maple Brown. Um, Andrew, um, if I can ask you for your view, we've been um, discussing uh, net zero targets and sort of um, at portfolio level their impact, um, but perhaps um, if specific views on how this might impact um, the way in which you engage with the portfolio companies um, in the listed infrastructure space um, or shape the portfolio going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our, our approach is, has very, um, for a long time been very focused on, on strong engagement with the companies. Um, we've engaged uh, very heavily over the years, particularly around uh, corporate governance areas, uh, though uh, more recently uh, the, the environmental side uh, has increasingly, increasingly come into focus for us. Um, and the, the work that George has been doing um, has been fantastic uh, in terms of from that perspective. So the net, net zero is really um, a, a further um, extension um, of that work that we've been doing. Well, putting it to both of you as an open question, um, what have you learned uh, by engaging with your portfolio companies on net zero and decarbonization activities? Um, Georgie spoke um, earlier about the um, the weighing of ambition, um, alignment to strategy, alignment to Paris. Um, but what does an active engagement approach bring, particularly around this era of this issue of net zero and decarbonization? So. 
when it comes to engaging with uh, companies on net zero and decarbonisation activities, um, we found that companies um, typically in the past have presented a slide deck to us. In other words, they thought it would be some sort of one-way discussion or conversation. And I think that companies always seem surprised when we had so many questions for them and essentially took the agenda out of their hands. Um, we also found that representatives from, say, investor relations used to hold the call, but now we're finding that more companies are coming more prepared uh, for the level of detail that we want to cover. Um, and they include, for example, people responsible for the actual implementation of the work alongside senior management and C-suite representatives. Um, and this is really important, we feel, because um, this allows us to see the tone at the top and the extent to which that marries up with the work taking place on the ground. And sometimes it doesn't, um, which is a sign of a disconnect and, and potentially a risk. And we want to understand that further. Uh, but we've definitely noticed a wind change in the topics um, companies are willing to explore and they are showing some level of openness too. So, for example, we found that many North American electric and multi-utilities were unwilling to explore the importance of scope three emissions. So those are the indirect emissions through, for example, um, customer use and supply chains and how these could be managed. And we also found that many companies were not open to the prospect of obtaining accreditation through bodies such as the Science-Based Targets Initiative. But we have found that this has really changed over the past 12 months. And both of these topics, for example, are becoming really an inevitable reality for companies, uh, particularly global listed infrastructure, which are heavily regulated and, and are held to high standards amongst their sta stakeholders. I think also what we've learned in these, um, these discussions is that statements in reporting such as ambitions to reach net zero by 2050 or committed to the science-based targets initiative or um, seek to reduce scope three emissions. These sort of statements sound great, but the question is, is what do these statements actually mean? Um, and, and things like we seek to, to reduce scope three emissions doesn't mean that they're actually reducing or managing them. And that's where we need to understand that detail again. Um, and, and again, you know, screen scraping and ratings and data are important, but alone they can fall short because these are questions that need to be asked to the people involved in the actual undertaking of the work and overseeing it. Um, because we need a level of accuracy in our understanding of these statements, because after all, uh, greenwashing carries risk and we act on behalf of our investors. And then Andrew, specifically in the listed infrastructure space, Georgia made the great point before that, you know, infrastructure utilities aren't like tobacco, you can do without tobacco, but you kind of need the water to run and the electricity to, to go over the wires. Um, so how do, how does the approach of decarbonization or the impacts of decarbonization particularly shape um, decisions around infrastructure portfolios? Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an excellent question. And, um, and yeah, as you say, the infrastructure assets are essential. Um, and, and so we, we as a society just can't, cannot stop using um, certain types of, of infrastructure. So, so I think that's an important distinction. Uh, you know, you can take the view that the journey want to invest in, in, in low carbon um, assets. Uh, we, we take the, the view that, that we want to invest in either the low emitters uh, or, or companies uh, who are going to be aggressive uh, in, in, in their rate of change. So, so companies that are going to be instrumental in, in the decarbonisation of society. So, um, so I think that's an important distinction uh, in terms of, of what you're looking at, uh, because at the end of the day, we all still need electricity, um, we need water, um, and electricity in particular at this point in time cannot be provided um, in, a, in a reliable um, and sustainable way. 
um, in a totally uh, decarbonised manner. That will come, uh, but at this point in time, it, it, it's, it's in most jurisdictions, is, is not possible. So what specifically are you looking for, Andrew, um, as you're assessing portfolio companies um, that you have under management when it comes to getting from here to 2050? Um, you know, George has been very, very specific in terms of talking about um, the indicators she's looking um, for overall, but how does this particularly shape the infrastructure space? Yes, so we're obviously looking to, to build portfolios uh, which, which will provide us the, the most attractive risk-adjusted return. And, and the ESG elements are, are just one aspect of those, or, or, but it's a, a very important aspect uh, in considering both the, the risks and the opportunities um, of these long-dated investments. Uh, in terms of focusing in on those ESG aspects, it, it's, it's very similar to, to you know, what George has been talking about uh, in, in terms of, of what we're looking for. Uh, but we're, we're really looking for, for companies uh, which you know, are, are very much focused um, on, on the decarbonisation. Uh, they've got plans uh, which are achievable uh, and plans which, which we believe um, you know, are, are appropriate uh, in terms of, of delivering for society uh, the, 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 the safe, the, the reliable um, delivery of energy um, in, in, a, in, a, in a clean manner, um, as affordable um, as possible to, to consumers. So, so they need to consider a variety of elements. Uh, it is not just about the decarbonisation, but they need to have a plan uh, in order uh, to, to achieve uh, you know, an outcome which, which, which we're seeking. Um, George, just to pick up on another point you mentioned earlier, uh, that one of the, the outcomes uh, at COP26 was the announcement of the ISSB um, and the commitment to create a single standard of financial accounting for sustainability-related metrics. Um, why does this matter when it comes to net zero targets? Um, and, and do you think that um, the reporting standards that will come of the work of the ISSB will sort of lead to that, um, that single comparable robust uh, reporting framework? Well, I think when it comes to COP26, um, the most important work is obviously what happens from here on. Um, these are obviously statements and announcements and um, I don't call me a healthy skeptic, but um, I don't really believe them. We don't believe them until we actually see them um, in, in practice and implementation, but of course, creating a harmonized body um, of reporting standards um, is, is just absolutely critical to achieving net zero. Um, what we really need as investors is more rigor to easily compare apples to apples and to have decision ready information. And navigating through non-financial reporting can be a minefield because um, it's convoluted and, and complicated. And let's face it, few of us were born as climate and emissions experts. Um, but if, you know, if we really truly believe, which we do on, on the GLI team, that climate change presents material financial risks and opportunities for investors, um, and, and that these need to be priced in by the market, then reporting on this area really should be treated at the same rigor as financial reporting. And it needs to be incorporated into the main body of financial statements. But the challenge that we face is, bizarrely enough, it's not really a case of a lack of non-financial reporting standards, but rather there's just this proliferation of them and there's limited harmonization. Um, and this means that companies are trying to satisfy frameworks such as the GRI, the SASB, TCFD, the 
greenhouse gas protocol. Um, and this makes reporting uh, convoluted, but also resource intensive for companies themselves. But this is a long-standing issue that's been actively addressed as, as we speak, and the outcomes of COP26 will, I'm sure, help with that. But in saying this, when it comes to net zero targets specifically, there's no rigor around target setting and reporting, and this is a real problem. I think that the SBTI's the Science-Based Targets Initiative is showing some promise by becoming the more dominant target setting accreditation body, but there's still a long way to go to get meaningful level of coverage um, with accreditation. Um, and really much of the lack of standardization comes from the fact that the private sector has long been operating in a policy and regulatory vacuum on the topic of decarbonization. And so the private sector has really pushed ahead in recent years with investors then lift to sift through the detail of these targets and the reporting. Um, so, yeah, this is one of the reasons actually we joined the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. Um, we decided that joining this initiative um, and committing to net zero emissions by 2050 and setting our own target would give us the opportunity to sort of wrap our arms around these challenges and be part of the discussion on the solutions, but also at the same time hold ourselves accountable to the same standards that we expect of companies. Um, and, and as we're seeing more rigor in this space and hopefully more standard setting, this will really allow us to, to move in that direction. And, and see great progress amongst companies themselves. Yeah, um, the, the multiple um, expectations around reporting is, is also a, a big problem for, for companies. That, that is feedback we often get as, as we're, we're encouraging companies, pushing companies uh, to, to provide this reporting. And in particular, it's, it's an issue for, for smaller companies we find. So, so larger companies can often afford to, to, to provide uh, the, the multiple sources of, of information. but. Um, but, but that is a challenge, a, a real challenge for, for smaller companies, which um, yeah, which we as investors certainly need to be mindful of. And to the extent we can um, harmonise the information requirements, that will certainly um, yeah, to take a step forward for the sector. All right. Well, on that, that hopeful but realistic note, uh, I thank you very much both for your time. Uh, this was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. You've been listening to Andrew Mickle-Brown and Georgia Hall. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Please remember you can subscribe to Financial Standards wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 